Let's pray. Oh, God, we want to be faithful. In the third millennium, we want to live faithfully before you, before the world. May the teaching this morning show us how. Through Holy Scripture, please, hide my voice, all the noises. Have your way front and center. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't suppose anybody was more surprised than Ben Carson when he saw the national polls indicating that for his political party, he was leading, just a few days ago, leading the race for the nomination of the President of the United States. So I don't suppose anybody else was surprised either when Donald Trump, who had been leading, had a little jab at Ben Carson's faith community. These are Trump's words. I'm Presbyterian. Boy, that's down the middle of the road, folks, in all fairness. I mean, Seventh-day Adventist? I don't know about. I just don't know about. End quote. But lo and behold, that little poke simply drove Carson higher in the polls in Iowa and the nation, especially among evangelicals. So what's up with Ben Carson and his presidential bid? I'll tell you what's not up. The North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists released a statement back in May when Dr. Carson announced that he was running for president. I'll put the statement on the screen for you. As the 2016 United States election cycle begins, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is aware of the increased interest in the presidential candidacy of Dr. Ben Carson. Dr. Carson's story is well known to most Adventists, and he is a well-respected physician. The Adventist Church has a long-standing position of not supporting or opposing any candidate for elected office. This position is based both, based both on our historical position of separation of church and state and the applicable federal law relating to the church's tax-exempt status. While individual church members are free to support or oppose any candidate for office as they see fit, it is crucial that the church as an institution remain neutral on all candidates for office. Care should be taken that the pulpit, that would be about right now. Care should be taken that the pulpit and all church property remain a neutral space when it comes to elections, end quote. So there you have it. Dr. Ben Carson, the very gifted pediatric neurosurgeon of Johns Hopkins, best-selling author, nationally popular speaker, is a Seventh-day Adventist, and he is running for President of the United States. And I, for one, wish him well, and I pray for his safety. However, the attraction of evangelical Republican voters to Ben Carson is frequently what is being noted in the press today. Here's a little clipping from the Denver Post, not on the screen. I'll just read the clipping to you. The day after the Republican presidential debate, this is from last week, the day after the Republican presidential debate in Colorado, as most candidates hustled to the early primary states, Ben Carson focused on his faith and refueled with energy from evangelical conservatives propelling his campaign to the front of the field in his calm, assured tone, described by one prominent conservative at the event as Christ-like. 
Carson told more than 1,500 people at Colorado Christian University to, quote, stop listening to secular progressives who are trying to kick God out of our country, end quote. Marilyn Viano, a 73-year-old who lives in Highlands Ranch, that would be in Colorado, held a Carson sign as she left the event at the university. Her top issue in the race, quoting Marilyn now, Christianity, our standards and values in, in America, that we need to rebuild America, end quote. So Christian standards and values to rebuild America. Is there anything wrong with Marilyn's hope? There is nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, let me share with you a text that we evangelicals often turn to. You say, we evangelicals? I said, we evangelicals. Let me share this with you. Uh, George Barna, the, the famed Christian demographer, came up with a list of nine traits that would define an evangelical in America, all right? Nine traits. You have ten fingers. Let's see if we can use nine of them. You stick a finger out to yourself as I read this list. So who are these evangelicals? They have made a personal commitment to Christ born again. Number two, they believe that by faith in Him they will be in heaven one day. Number three, they say their faith is very important in their life today. Number four, they believe they have a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs about Christ with non-Christians. Number five, they believe that Satan exists. Have you used up one hand? Let's go to the next one. Number six, they believe that eternal salvation is possible only through grace, not works. Number seven, they believe that Christ Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. Number eight, they assert that the Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. And number nine, they describe God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. Ladies and gentlemen, Seventh-day Adventists, by definition, are evangelical Christians. So we turn to a well-known text for us Evangelicals. Let's go. Proverbs, the book, of, the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs, chapter 14, Old Testament. Wise King Solomon. What's he going to tell us, I wonder, today? Well, open your Bible up. Let's find out. Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34. I'll be in the New International Version. You just follow along whatever you have. That'll work, because in any translation, this is rather clear. Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 34. I'll put it on the screen for you. Righteousness exalts a nation... But sin condemns any people. They're rather clear. Evangelical Christians believe that the prosperity of a nation, pagan or believers, the prosperity of any nation is directly proportional to its moral and ethical stand. In fact, King Solomon continues to drive that point home in this book. Just turn over to chapter 16, verse 12. So, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 12, I'll read this. Kings detest wrongdoing. Now, you, you, look, at, we're not a kingship over here. We're a presidency. We, we, we have elected leaders. So you can put any leader in you want. Uh, leaders detest wrongdoing for a throne or an office is established through righteousness. Let's do one more. Chapter 20, verse 28. Proverbs 20, verse 28. Love and faithfulness, the New King James says, mercy and truth, keep a leader, keep a king, keep a leader safe. Through love, the leader's office, term in office, is made secure. 
Now, you know what happens. I know how we do this. Our initial response when we hear texts like this is, because we're an educated community here, we tell ourselves, our initial response is, well, you know, this is dealing with the ancient theocracy. This is when you had God as the king, and the kings were kind of the under kings under God himself. I beg to differ with you, and so does Scripture. In fact, the ancient book Daniel embedded within it are some unmistakable evidences that God says, pagan or believing, doesn't matter the nation, I am the sovereign of that nation. Watch this. And we're not putting these on the screen, so you have to follow in your Bible, because I want you to see it in your own Word of God. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's had this, this scary nightmare of a dream. He has no idea what the dream means. He calls the wise men. Daniel prays. God gives Daniel the interpretation, and now Daniel rejoices. Verse 21, uh, Daniel 2, verse 21, notice Daniel's description of God. God, he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. God is not, Daniel's not just talking about Israel. He's nowhere near Israel. He's in Babylon. The context is a pagan empire. God puts them up and puts them down. He says, I'm in, I'm in charge around here. Let's take a look at another one. What is this? This would be chapter 4. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, God bless him. He really got a big head over all the prosperity that came to his empire. And one day he just said, oh, I'm the man. And God says, I have a word for you, the man. This would be verse, uh, verse 25. Daniel, God sending the word through Daniel. Daniel says to the king, this is the interpretation of what you dreamed, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will go by until, now here it goes, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. O king, do you understand you are under a sovereign ruler? I know you're pagan. Too bad. He's still the ruler. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, please be pleased to accept my advice. Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Morally, ethically, it's not going good in Babylon. I'm not pleased with this at all, and you're gone. You are gone. Do you understand me? God has a right to do that. He says, this isn't about theocracy. This is about human society and rule. Wow. Okay, Daniel, look, chapter 5, go to chapter 5. This is Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He's made a mess of his, his term in office. Whew. And tonight it's over. And this bloodless hand shows up and with, fin with a finger carves on the walls a judgment from God. Here's the middle of that judgment, verse 27. Tekel, that's the word written on the wall. Tekel, it means you have been weighed, O king, on the scales and found wanting. I know you're pagan. I know you don't have faith in me. Too bad. You have been weighed and found wanting. It's over tonight, and it, psh, it was over. One more. Chapter 6. Daniel comes out of the lion's den. We all love this story. Another pagan king. Now, Darius. Darius issues a proclamation because Daniel's alive. Verse 25, the next morning, 
Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth. This is global. Come on. This is for everybody under my rule. Here's the word. May you prosper greatly, verse 26, and I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Why? Because the God of Daniel is the sovereign of this planet. That's why. Now, you're saying, man, what kind of a God is this kind of throwing his big weight around and bullying everybody into believing in him? Are you kidding? You got the wrong picture. The picture of God is, I have so much compassion. I have so much love for every single human being that any man or woman puts a finger in the wrong way on any of them. You're doing it to me. Do you understand? You're doing this to me, and I will not allow this to continue. You're out. There is a moral and ethical foundation, clearly, that the Most High God reveals, indicating he is sovereign over every nation and ruler, pagan or believer, it matters not. And now listen, please. When a nation abandons God's foundational human morality, it sows the seeds of its own eventual demise. Classic case, Edward Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. No nation, not Babylon, not Rome, not the United States. No nation can with impunity abandon moral and ethical integrity, devour and destroy Earth's resources, neglect the poor and the marginalized, bully and or terrorize weaker nations into submission without paying a price, without answering to this sovereign ruler of the universe. You cannot live that way. You cannot rule that way. I, you cannot be that way. You're out. Next. He loves people. It's the human that he's trying to protect from evil, despotic rulers. Put Proverbs 14 on the screen again. This is from the New Living. I like this. Godliness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And that's why evangelicals, particularly conservative evangelical Americans, are so bent on returning this nation to the divine, moral, and ethical foundations advanced and advocated in Scripture. And guess what? There's nothing wrong with that. The candidacy of Ben Carson is tapping into those strongly held beliefs, and thus far, apparently, evangelical voters are finding him a kindred spirit. That's what we're seeing. So what would happen? So here's the... Here, now, come on. We didn't come just to get a little history lesson. Let's think. What would happen if we joined evangelicals in their efforts to restore the moral and ethical foundation? Some would say the biblical foundation of this nation. What if we essentially embraced their cause celebre? You say, oh, Dwight, obviously you have forgotten that this little faith community has a very strong stand on the separation of church and state. We advocate the principles of religious liberty. We will not allow the state to incur authority over the church, nor will we allow the church to suggest legislation from the state to advance the church's agenda. I have a book in my library entitled The Godless Constitution, The Case Against Religious Correctness. It's written by two Cornell University professors, Isaac Kramnick and R. Lawrence Moore. And when people come and ask me, yo, Dwight, where do you stand? I say, I stand the same place the Baptist preacher stood. I'm talking about the Baptist preacher that founded Rhode Island. You've heard of Rhode Island? He founded it. What's his name? Roger Williams. I say to people, that's where I stand, evangelical. These are the words of these two professors on the screen, please. People attacked Roger Roger Williams, as a radical, a church-ruinating or a church-ruining anarchist. 
Why? They were mad for, because they were saying he was laying the ideological foundation for a society that takes religion seriously but constructs a state without reference to any religious claims. And that's exactly what he was doing. Such a, such a society, however, is not secular if by that we mean that religion plays no role in public life. Its politics, however, is godless, and so in their official functions are its politicians. Williams reached his conclusions about the urgent need to separate church and state not because he didn't care about the future of Christianity, but because he sometimes appeared to care about nothing else. Williams' main concern was always the purity of the church." End quote. In other words, the separation of church and state, which, by the way, the Constitution protects, doesn't suggest that a society must be godless or even religionless. It's not saying that. Nor does it require its politicians or its jurists to be godless or religionless. But by the same token, the separation of church and state ensures that neither religion nor godliness is to be a test for political office or civic leadership. You can be godless and without religion, and you can still lead. Now, one more line from these two authors. No one cares on the screen now. No one who cares about civil peace would deny that morality is important. Everybody here think morality is important? Our hands all go up. The dispute. Okay, here's the debate. The dispute is rather between those who argue that the content of morality is itself a question for public debate and those who argue that morality is an issue already settled by the religious views of the purported majority. We've already decided this, guys. This is the way it will be. No, no, no. You can't do that. Keep reading. To the latter, to those who say we're the majority, we're doing it this way. To the latter, if public officials don't profess religion, if they don't make a link between proper citizenship and church going, if they don't see to it that school children pray, then the latter feels this, the country's on its way to hell. End quote. No, 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 no. You and I agree. We must stand firm on the separation of church and state. We must embrace the values of religious liberty. But joining the evangelicals and some of their cause celebrities would not jeopardize this separation principle. That's what I'm suggesting. Now watch. I want to explain by way of a fascinating narrative. So this summer sometime, I don't know why I was in the book or why I got to that particular chapter, but the book, Great Controversy, I suddenly found myself in... The Pilgrim Fathers, that's the title of one of the chapters. And I'm reading, it's just a few pages, and I come across a sense I have never noticed before. And I want you to, I want you to examine this for yourself. Now, of course, we all know the story of the pilgrims sailing to our windswept shores as an intrepid band of Puritans back in 1620. We know the story of how they carved out of that desolate wilderness a brave new society. It's all the stuff of American History 101. You know I know all of that. Now, what was new, however, was the great controversy's interpretation of what's happening in New England. Watch this. Put, the, put it on the screen, please. The pilgrims patiently endured the privations of the wilderness, watering the tree of liberty with their tears. Oh, I like that. And with the sweat of their brow till it took deep root in the land. The Bible was held as the foundation of faith, the source of wisdom, and the charter of liberty. Did you catch that? The charter. That would be the guidebook. The Bible was considered the guidebook of liberty. So what's happening here? Well, simply that the government that they are forging in this new world is being erected on the moral ethical foundation that is espoused and that they knew well in the Scriptures. That's the deal. 
Now keep reading. Here, here it comes. Here comes that sentence. The Bible's principles were diligently taught, back during the days of the Puritans, were diligently taught in the home, in the school, and in the church. Catch those three places? Home, school, church. And its fruits were manifest in thrift, intelligence, purity, and temperance. Now here comes the sentence. It was demonstrated there by the pilgrims and their followers. It was demonstrated that the principles of the Bible are the surest safeguards of national greatness. Whoa. Wow. Who stuck that in there? Isn't that something? We just sang it a moment ago. You didn't know. Most of you did not know that our opening hymn, where we were standing together, thank you, uh, Josh, for leading us, the opening hymn, and we're singing God of Our Fathers. That is America's national hymn. I'm not saying anything about the nation you're from. There are almost 90 nations here at, at Andrews University. I'm not saying a word about that. The fact is, however, you're in America, and that is America's national hymn. We just sang it. And in the hymn, you sang these words. It's a prayer to God. Thy true religion in our hearts increase. The nation has prayed this for years. So what's up? In early America, here's what we just read. In early America, the principles of the Bible were taught in the home, the school, and the church. And those very principles, we just noted it, are the surest safeguards of national greatness. We need the principles to be a great nation. In other words, the surest way to safeguard, to preserve, to protect national greatness for the United States of America is to advocate and advance the Bible's principles in homes, schools, and the churches of this land. Isn't that precisely what Proverbs 14, 34 just told us? Put it on the screen again. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Great controversy. The principles of the Bible are the surest safeguards of national greatness. Now look, ladies and gentlemen, if that's true, then why wouldn't we join with our evangelical neighbors in seeking to advance and advocate the moral, ethical principles of the Bible throughout the land? They have the right. It's a good thing. Uh, I don't know, Dwight. What are some of the causes that they've championed over the years? Okay, let me, let me run them by you. Ten Commandments displayed in uh, public places. I remember preaching hard against that 10, 15 years ago, whenever. Here's another one. Prayer and Bible study opportunities for students even in public schools. Here's another one. The elimination of abortion as an elective method of birth control. Here's another one. Hot button right now challenging jurists and politicians who rewrite the biblical definition of marriage. There are a score of hot button issues. So all I'm saying is, what would happen? Hey, let's do this. Let's just, let's, let's isolate just one of those issues. Let's take reading the Bible and public school. Turns out that's not such a, that's not such a, an innovative idea. Back at the turn of the century, late 1890s, it was a big deal. In fact, there was legislation moving through to establish Bible reading in public schools. Yep. And a well-known Seventh-day Adventist minister in the 1890s, his name, A.T. Jones. Don't know if you've ever heard of him well-known minister, strong advocate of religious liberty, strong church and state separationist, he was pushing hard to defeat a law that would allow Bible reading in public schools to keep the bill from passing, all his energy. And then in the midst of it, he gets a letter from a little five-foot, three-inch woman named Ellen White who's writing from New Zealand, those of you who are Kiwis. And she says, dear brother, 
put the words on the screen for you. By the way, you have a study guide with all of this in your, bul in your bulletin today, so you'll have the quotes. Dear brother, there is a subject which greatly troubles my mind. While I do not see the justice nor right in enforcing by law the bringing the Bible to be read in public schools, with you, Alonzo, I agree. The state should not enforce religious practice. I agree. But, now keep reading, yet there are some things which burden my mind in regard to our people making prominent their ideas on this point. These things, I am sure, will place us in a wrong light before the world." End quote. In other words, what she's saying is, look, look, I share with you the conviction. Should not be. It should not. Not Bible in public school, state mandating it, no. But I'm concerned, she says, how the nation might interpret that action. I mean, aren't these the Seventh-day Advent? Aren't these the people that go around saying the Bible and the Bible alone, that's where we stand? Why would these people be opposing the Bible in public school? I'm concerned, she says, she writes, what they might conclude. Would this be wise? Well, but, but what if the law passed? She answers that. Let her back on the screen. If such a law were to go into effect, the Lord would overrule it for good, that an argument should be placed in the hands of those who keep the Sabbath in their favor to stand on the Bible foundation in reference to the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. In other words, there'd be so many Bibles around, people say, we say, hey, this is where we stand. They say, oh, yeah, because we have a Bible. We know that's where you stand. Thank you for sharing. She said, it would be good. Keep reading. My brother, this objecting to the passing of a law to bring the Bible into the schools will work against us who are making so much of the Bible." End quote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, and particularly you young adults, I want you to catch a very moderating middle-of-the-road strategy here from that little five-foot, three-inch woman. Notice what she's doing, a very helpful example of how there are times when you need to be willing to sidestep a principled stand in order to build bridges to the important evangelical community and ally ourselves with its interests. Step aside. Let it go. Makes you wonder if perhaps the time has come for us to do the same in the 21st century. That's what I'm wondering out loud with you about. Whatever your evaluation of Ben Carson as a presidential candidate, whatever it is, it is clear that a large measure of his success thus far is the result of his campaign's intentional alignment with the values and causes American evangelicals are espousing. Do you know why it works? Because, let me, let me just run this line by you. Do you agree with this line? When you seek common good, you share common ground. Does that make sense? Let me put it on the screen for you so that you can kind of visually lock it into your mind. When you seek common good, you share common ground. Turns out that's a wise piece of Bible counsel. Just came across this this week. I couldn't believe it. Is this verse there? Yes, it is. First Peter on the screen, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? If we can de demonstrate to our activist evangelical neighbors that we share their principled stand or stands for the common good of this nation, we move onto common ground with them. And when you share common ground, you become allies and not adversaries. 
And when you are allies in a cause, the uncompromising stands you will one day have to take have a much greater chance of being understood and even embraced by your allies. Does that make sense? When you seek common good, you share common ground. And as Peter put it, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Thus, I'm convinced that God, God is calling us to a mission possible. It's not impossible. It's a mission possible. An easing of traditional hardline church and state separationist stance. You just ease that stance. Because growing friendships for our common good now can prepare for the day when we will earnestly appeal for the common ground then. Which means that you and I, let me end with this, you and I can do something. You and I can begin right away to build bridges to our evangelical neighbors, our evangelical friends, our evangelical colleagues. Four steps. Here's what you do. Number one. Consider the causes that they are activists in supporting. Look at them. In just a moment, if you give me your email address, I'll send you a list of some hot-button causes, all right? So look at that list. Number two, ask yourself if you can conscientiously... Nobody's asking you to go against your conscience. Ask yourself if you can conscientiously join them in seeking that common good. Then number three, be willing to sidestep a preferred or even principled stand in order to ally with them in seeking the common good. Keeping in mind, number four, that seeking common good opens the door to common ground. And that's the mission possible. How do I know it's a mission possible? You know how, how I know? Because Christ Himself, the incarnate God, came down to this planet, and what was His MO? What was His modus operandi? He began to seek common good that He might establish common ground. You don't like that plan? You throw it out, you just ended His mission because it's His mission, and that's why it's possible. Seek the common good so that we might share the common ground. Let's pray. Oh, God, we are living in interesting times, to say the least. And we don't know everything, but we do know that following our Lord Jesus is a very safe path for our mission. Thank you for this mission possible. Thank you for suggesting that there can be a moderate, middle-of-the-road strategy to seek common good, to establish common ground. This isn't for us. It's the world that you love, all these human beings that you are desiring to bring home one day. Let us be faithful in this mission as we seek to live like Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. I wanted to take an extra moment to let you know how grateful I am you joined us today. I hear from viewers and listeners like you all across this nation and literally around the world, and I'm thankful. Because it's through the generosity of the members of this congregation and people like you that we're able to bring you this program. So if what we share today has touched your heart, I'd like to invite you to become a financial partner with us. Just give us a call. Toll-free number 877, the two words, His Will. 877, His Will. Or if you'd rather, go to our website, www.pmchurch.tv. 
either way, your generosity will bless a new generation in cyberspace all over this planet. So thank you. Thank you very much for your partnership.